Good evening, everybody. My name is Patrick Hayes, and I am visiting from Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, your pastor was kind enough to ask me to preach to you tonight. And along with that, I love the sound of my own voice, so here we are. I asked your pastor two questions before I got up here. I said, I don't have a jacket. Is it okay if I preach at your church without a jacket? I didn't pack one. He said that was fine. And then second question, my old pastor told me, he said, anytime you're going to go and preach at somebody's church, you always ask the pastor, how long should I go for? You don't want to be that guy that just rambles on and on. And, uh, and your pastor said, uh, brother, just go as long as you feel God's going to lead you. So, yep. So, um, over the next two and a half hours, we're going to go over some stories in the Bible that I really like. That was a joke. They're dry and they're going to come fast, uh, so just laugh out of sympathy. If nothing else, once in a while, it'll, it'll move it along. Um, I'm going to say a brief word of prayer, just because it calms me down, because I don't know any of you folks. So I'm nervous. And I wasn't expecting to preach. And I didn't have much time uh, to get ready, uh, but I did drink a lot of coffee. So we'll at least get through the material quickly, if nothing else. So let's start with a word of prayer. Hopefully it'll calm me down and, and then we'll jump in. Lord, you're, you're just so wonderful. You are so awesome. You're so gracious. And, and Lord, uh, at best, I will be a sinner. And uh, God, I just want to ask that you'd please forgive me for all the areas in my life where I fall short. And God, I'd ask that uh, you would please guide and direct this evening. Uh, it would be such a shame if, uh, if I tried to preach the word and you weren't here, if you didn't guide and direct, it would just be a terrible waste of time. And Lord, we just want to ask that, we just want to invite you here and ask that you would, uh, you would guide and direct, you'd, you'd touch hearts and... Uh, You'd give us a good time. And Lord, as we, as we get into the Bible, I just want to ask that we'd all learn something about you that, that would encourage us in some way or convict us. or Lord, whatever you got in store. But I, I pray we'd learn something about the Bible and we could be more like you and less like us in this, in this coming week. That's, that's all I want, Lord. And um, in your name we pray. Amen. So... Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be, if nothing else, there's going to be a lot of Bible verses here. So you can turn with me if you're fast enough. If you're not, just write it down and look it up later, and uh, we'll see where we get. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two little portions of the Bible, very brief there are two things that I liked learning about that I found interesting. And then depending on the time, um, I'm going to try to cover one subject that, that I think is important and that, that helped me a lot when I, when I learned about it. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 16 through 22, and then we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit and see where we go. And um, is uh, and, and I'm on this one, so I can walk around. Okay, wonderful. That's good. Okay. So Luke chapter 14, or sorry, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth 
where he had been brought up, and, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, Pastor, can I ask you, this is embarrassing for me to ask you, I just copied that and pasted that from my Bible app on my computer because I was in a rush. That was the King James Version, right? Okay, wonderful. Okay. Just, I was going to say, because I've done that before and for some reason it defaulted to the NIV and then I read it and I felt like an idiot and I just, okay, just wanted to make sure because otherwise this is going to be awkward and I'm going to get lost. Okay, so, so what do we have here? We have Jesus who is showing up in Nazareth. And it says, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, there's a tradition for the Jews in the synagogue. And when, so let me start with this. They would read through a schedule. So every Saturday they would get up and there was a portion that they would read out of the Bible called the Torah portion. And every synagogue all over the world was reading the same portion. And then they'd read another little section that they'd read out of the prophets, and that's what they would do, and they would go through the whole Old Testament once a year. So if you were traveling to go see your family somewhere else, and Saturday came and you went into the synagogue, you knew what they were going to talk about that week because it was the same thing that you were going to be talking about. So everyone was on a schedule, and you went through it every single year. And that dated all the way back to the time of Moses when God told Moses, they said that you're going to teach the Bible. Keep in mind, that was the Old Testament, obviously, at the time. And you're going to teach it every year. And then once every seven years, you're going to gather up the whole country and we're going to read the whole thing all at once. And I couldn't imagine how long that took, but it must have been quite an event. But it was kind of nice because wherever you went, you knew what the message was going to be on. So you could read ahead and you could be prepared. And also you found out that in the synagogues in those days, it was a little different in that they would have a father of a family or a man over a certain age and they would get on a schedule and everyone would take turns. Now they would have a rabbi there as well, but all the the fathers and the husbands would take turns teaching the Bible one Saturday in the synagogue after another. But they had this neat little tradition, and I'm going to show you this in the book of Acts, where anytime someone was visiting, if it was your turn to come up and read from the scriptures and expound on it a little bit, you, as a courtesy, would go to the visitor and say, would you be so kind as to teach us today? And it it was just a nice thing to do, and that, believe it or not, it's, it's why I'm here, Okay, that tradition is carried along, and, and oftentimes I was telling Pastor Ellis, or maybe it was, 
I don't know who I was talking to. I was talking to a lot of folks today, and I, it was a whirlwind. <clears throat> and, uh, and I was saying, any time uh, a friend of mine who is pastoring somewhere comes back to Grand Junction to visit their family, and they visit my church, I always tell them, I say, you better be ready, because I'm going to sit down, and you're going to teach us the Bible. So when Jesus showed up, he was the visitor, and they said, hey, would you be so kind as to teach us and he graciously accepted now there's a reason why he accepted and why he accepted on that day because remember there was a schedule so a certain portion of scripture was going to be read and they handed him the scroll of Isaiah right so he went in there knowing I'm going to read from Isaiah and I'm going to read from this portion of Isaiah and this is important because of what he reads so if we look in verse 18, oh, you know what? Before I get there, let me show you, just so you know I'm not making this up. The Sabbath synagogue tradition. We find this in Acts 13. Flip with me to Acts 13 and let's take a peek at this. <clears throat> Acts 13. You know what? I'm going I'm to go ahead and use one of those. Acts 13, verses 14 and 15. Here we read, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he was a missionary. He went around the known world and he started a bunch of churches and he did the same thing everywhere he went. He went to a city. He went to the synagogue. He preached Jesus. Most all of the Jews hated him for it. They didn't like him very much, but a few were really willing to listen. Then he left, and then he went and preached to the Gentiles, and a bunch of them listened, and he, they were excited. And then he started a church, and everybody, um, he would stay there for sometimes several years, sometimes just a short time. And then he would train up some folks, and he would leave someone behind that knew what they were doing, and he would go on to the next city. But every single city you go to, you find out that he would show up in the synagogue, and he would get up in front of everyone and preach Jesus. And you say, well, why did they invite him up to teach in front of the synagogue every time he went there? Because he was the visitor. So, it made it so that tradition made it so easy for Paul everywhere he went he was going to be given the Bible and he opened up the Old Testament and guess what every single part of the Old Testament points to? Points to Jesus. The whole point, the Old Testament, every single thing, every one of the feast days points to Jesus and every one of the sacrifices points to Jesus and every one of the stories that we read about the children of Israel going through, they all point to the coming Messiah. And Paul would go up there and he'd read from the Old Testament and he would tell them about how the Messiah has come and we need to get saved and it's this guy Jesus that you heard about and they would all get mad and they'd throw rocks at him and try to kill him and drive him out of the town and the whole thing would go and then he'd repeat the process in another town. So... Here, we're reading about this tradition. So, I think I was in verse 14 and 15. In verse 15, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So you see how that happened? They, they read the scripture, and then they invited Paul and his uh, followers, who were Barnabas and sometimes Silas and different fellows, Come on up and please expound on the Word of God. So that's what was 
the tradition. That's what Jesus was doing here back in the book of Luke. Okay. So back to Luke, back to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, and let's take a look at what Jesus was telling us. Starting in verse 18, Jesus starts quoting, well, he's, he's reading, but we're going to quote from the book of Isaiah, and it's going to be Isaiah chapter 61, which we're going to turn to in a minute. Now, Jesus is reading the words of the prophet Isaiah, but the neat thing is Jesus is speaking in the first person. He's not talking about some guy that's going to come one day. He's saying, I'm the guy. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Now, how many people do we know that gave sight to the blind? This is a messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for and uh, the entire Old Testament was pointing to. This is a prophecy saying, hey, when the guy comes, he's going to recover sight to the blind. And Jesus did that a whole bunch. To preach deliverance to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this is a strange question, but what comes right after the word Lord? Look in your Bible. What is that? It's a period, right? Okay, good. So now, let's go back to Isaiah 61. And let's see if we can identify what the problem is here. And there's not a problem. There's a really neat thing. Now, do you folks believe the Bible? Yes. All right. Do you know that every period and comma is in there for a reason? Every single one. This book is not a book written about God. It's very important we understand this is a book written by God. Big difference. Isaiah 61, we're going to read verses 1 and half of verse 2. Now in Luke, he said, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. Let's read Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1, and we'll get into 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Sounds familiar so far, right? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What comes right after Lord? Comma. Well, let's finish verse 2. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Jesus, when he was reading from the book of Isaiah in Luke, stopped at a comma. Why did he stop at a comma? Now, that's a question for you. I want to I hear an answer. At our church, because we meet in our home and we're sitting on couches it feels very close and so we always encourage folks 
I ask questions, I look for answers, people raise their hands and ask me questions, and I make up answers. It's a wonderful time. Why did Jesus stop at the comma in the middle of verse 2? Anyone have a thought? Not you. You've heard me teach this before. I did not come up with this message this afternoon. <laughs> I went back to things I understood that were familiar. It's the only way this was going to work. After the comma, now let me ask you this, okay? We've all read the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we've all read the story of Jesus many times from the four different authors. Okay, Spirit of the Lord God is upon Jesus. Do we agree? Did that happen in the Gospels? Did the Lord anoint him to preach good tidings unto the meek? Absolutely. He did that in the, in the Gospels. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Did Jesus do all those things? He cast out demons. He freed the people. He healed the people. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, did he do that? He did. He preached all those things. Now, and the day of vengeance of our God, did that happen in the Gospels? No. It didn't. The day of vengeance of our God, that's coming. Did you know that Jesus came once and then he said he's coming a second time? We're all familiar with that, right? We're waiting for the second coming of Christ, right? Now, in the Old Testament, and, and, and understand, <clears throat> it's easy to read through the Old Testament and just slap our forehead and think, oh, brother, the children of Israel, they just, they messed up and then they got right with God and then the next page they messed up again. And it's easy to do that. But the whole purpose of the Old Testament is to hold up a mirror and show me my failings because I mess up just as bad as any of those folks do. I, I figure out what's wrong, God shows me, I get right with God, and I stumble the next day and I do something boneheaded and, and it's just embarrassing. Now, <clears throat> they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Some did, very small number, okay? But for the most part, the entire nation of Israel, they rejected the Lord and that's why the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles in Acts chapter two, the churches started on Pentecost and all, and this is all wonderful and you're familiar with this. <clears throat> Throughout the whole Old Testament, there are lots of prophecies about the Messiah that's going to come one day. We read this prophecy about how he's going to be born of a virgin. We read this prophecy about how he's going to heal the blind. We read this prophecy about all these things that he's going to do. When Jesus came in the Gospels, what animal was he compared to? Say it louder. That's right, he was, he was, he came as a lamb. But the Bible talks about him coming as a, another kind of animal. What kind of animal was that? A lion. And Jesus, there is a prophecy about him being a political ruler. What position was he to hold? What political office was Jesus going to hold when he came, when the Messiah came? He was going to be a king. 
But it also talks in the Old Testament about him being a servant. If you go now, I like history. I just love history and I love to read. And what you find out is that through large portions of the Old Testament, the rabbis were convinced there were going to be two messiahs. Because the prophecies given about Jesus were so different that they thought surely one man cannot be both a king and a servant. How does that work? If you're a king, you're not serving anyone. If you're a king, you're in charge. And if you're a lion, that's very different from being a lamb. And it very clearly says he's going to be a lion and he's going to be a lamb. They never thought he was coming twice. They assumed every prophecy would happen all at once when he showed up. And guess what? Who was in charge of the nation of Israel at the time of Christ? Who was in charge? Rome. Were they good guys? (laughs) They were terrible. They were terrible. So the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. And who did they want to have come? Which animal were they waiting for? They were waiting for the lion. They wanted someone to to take out Rome and to free them and to to make things right and to, to, to right all the wrongs and the injustices. And what did they get instead? They got the lamb. They got the Passover lamb, right? So that's why so many of the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They were wanting the king and the lion, but they didn't get it. They got the lamb and the servant. But the king and the lion are coming. And they're coming after the comma. Jesus had to stop at the comma because he was speaking in the first person when he was reading out of Isaiah. He said, the Lord hath anointed me to do all these things. Has anyone ever, has anyone here ever heard someone say, well, the Bible never said Jesus is God. Jesus never said he was God. Yeah, anyone ever hear that? Jesus never said he was God in the Bible. Yeah, he did. He did it right there. He said, I'm him. When you read through the Gospels, I'll tell you how you can know Jesus is saying, I am God. Because all the Pharisees do the same thing. Every time Jesus would stand up and say, I am God, I am the Messiah, they would all reach down and pick up a rock. Because it was blasphemy to claim that you were God. And they were picking up rocks to stone him to death in obedience of the law of Moses. Problem is, there's one guy that is allowed to say he's God. And that's Jesus. When he came back, he's the one that is allowed to say that. Okay, let's go to another one. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This is all by way of introduction. We'll get to the message in about 45 minutes. Okay, Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. There's going to be a little bit of reading. But this one's pretty neat as well. Now, one of the reasons I bring this little story up in the book of Luke is that whenever 
you're reading through the New Testament, and it says, thus saith the Lord, when it says, it is written, that means they're quoting someone in the Old Testament. And that means that the Holy Spirit has a little nugget of truth somewhere in the Bible for you. Just like we read there in Luke, you just got to dig it up and find it. So you always got to find, well, who was speaking there and where is it? And let's read that little spot out of the prophet of the Old Testament. And we're going to learn something neat about Jesus today. So remember, anytime you get into that in the Bible, dig into it. God is going to show you something neat. He's got something neat for you. This is, we're just stepping away from here for a second. The greatest advice I was ever given was by a preacher that I really enjoyed. I, I loved listening to the, he, this fellow. He, he has passed on. But he said that when he was a young man, a pastor challenged him to make the Bible his hobby. He said, make the Bible your hobby. Now, I've been a pastor for almost two years. Prior to that, I worked at another church as a layman for over 10 years. I taught Sunday school. I drove the bus. I did everything to do with plumbing. I, I mean, I, you know, I just did whatever there was to do. That's what I did for over 10 years. I taught a Sunday school class all of those 10 years, and I made the Bible my hobby way back when I got saved 20 years ago. And it was the greatest decision I have ever made in my life. Okay, young lady, the gentleman here, okay, the youngest folks in the crowd, make the Bible your hobby. Whatever your hobby is, you ready for this? Whatever your hobby is, gentlemen, if you are married, the odds are whatever your hobby is, you spend more money on your hobby than you want your wife to know about whether it be golf clubs or whether it be hunting or fishing, whatever it is. Why? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So the things we enjoy, the things we care about, guess what? That's where our money goes. Make the Bible, studying the Bible, your hobby. Nowadays, it is so easy. Whatever, whatever book you ever wanted to hear, whatever preacher you ever wanted to listen to, whatever... it. it it's all here, and it's free. It's amazing. You can read through the Bible, and you can, you can read a, a Bible commentary from whatever pastor in the last 500 years that you want to read. Every book in, in existence is available for you. <clears throat> Take the time. Study the Bible every day. Put some time aside, just like you would with your hobby. If you go jogging, you probably do it every day. If you like lifting weights, you probably do it every day. If you like fishing, you probably do it every chance you can. Whatever your hobby is, take the time. You will not look back and regret your time in the Bible. I did that. I took that challenge 20 years ago. It was the greatest challenge that I have ever taken. It was the greatest decision that I ever made. I made the Bible my hobby. Okay, I want to get back here because I don't want to keep you too long. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read these verses and then we'll get into it. Then was Jesus led up to the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, 
and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. What's about to happen, friends? You can call out an answer and be wrong. That's okay. Who's speaking right now? What? Satan's speaking. That's right. Satan's speaking. And the last four words Satan just said, he says, for it is written. What is Satan about to do? Satan is about to quote the Bible. Did you get that? Do you know that just because someone holds a Bible and quotes it does not mean they are from God? Our job is to run whatever is said through the filter of the Bible and make sure that it lines up with it. Now, let's see how Satan does when he quotes the Bible. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So the devil has Jesus up on this high temple. Big building, okay, top of the building, and he says, Jesus, cast yourself off. Shouldn't be a problem. Because the Bible says this right here, that the angels are going to catch you and you're going to be fine. That's what the devil's saying. He wants Jesus to jump. Now, he said, for it is written. Does anyone know where he's quoting from? This is worth two gold stars. Two. He is. He's quoting from the Psalms. Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. Let's go there. Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 and 12. Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 and 12. He says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee, they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. That's what the devil said. What did the, what did the devil leave out? To keep thee in all thy ways. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. See, the angels were there to keep him when he's doing the will of God, not when he's doing whatever he wants. When the devil quotes scripture, he changes it. Just a little. Devil has no problem quoting scripture. <laughs> he does it. He just edits it. He takes a little out. He adds a little bit to it. He changes it a little bit to make sure that the meaning is different. And that's how he gets us. The devil did this all the way back in the Garden of Eden. What was the very first thing the devil said? saying, boy, Genesis, how long has it been since I've been there? I think the pages still stick together in Genesis. Very first statement of the devil was a question. Hast God said, thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden? <clears throat> the devil came and tempted Eve, and the very first statement in the Bible, I'm going to turn there just because, you know, we got time. You guys are paying good money for this. I figure I better give you your money's worth. The pastor was kind enough to 
say the church was going to pay for our flights out here and all my gambling losses for the whole week. He was a very generous man, so I'm going to give you your money's worth. The devil said, and he said unto the woman, this is chapter 3, verse 1, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. First thing the devil did was question the word of God. Did God really say that? Come on. Did he really say that? Second thing he did was outright deny the word of God. He said, ah, you can eat of the tree. It's no big deal. That's what the devil does. The devil does the same thing today that he did thousands of years ago. Nothing has changed. He is not original. He knows what works, and he does it again and again and again. Remember, when you see someone quoting the Bible, that doesn't mean that they are from God. They might be that angel of light. I'm not going to get into the verses there. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible, and, and it's not going to make sense uh, for a second. Paul said that uh, those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with all readiness, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. When Paul got thrown out of Thessalonica or ran out, he went not too far to a, a smaller town called Berea. And when he went to Berea, the folks there were happy to hear the Bible. They were happy to sit there and listen to Paul teach the Bible and Jesus for hours and hours and hours. But it said that they did not believe Paul just because he taught them something. They went home and they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And then they came back and they believed Paul because they, they said they went back, they searched the Old Testament, they got their questions answered, and they said, this guy's got it. That's our job. I hope you folks do that at least with me. I trust you not to trust me. You do your own homework. Take whatever I teach you, and if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, discard it. Okay, I'm going to get into what I wanted to talk to you about here, and uh, we'll see how we do. Okay, now, I'm not going to ask Pastor Ellis or his wife, what time does he usually wrap up on a Sunday night? Be honest. Come on! All right, you asked for it. Okay, I'm going to go over um, an idea here that I think is very important that we all have nailed down and we all know exactly where we stand on this idea. And the idea comes down to, can I lose my salvation? An individual who believes that they are a sinner, they believe that Jesus is God, they believe that heaven is real and that hell is eternal punishment for our sin. They don't want to go to hell. They want to go to heaven. And they believe that God made a way and that Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross was all the work that needed to be done. That was the sacrifice. And, and my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The person that believes those things, they are ready to be saved and they can go to God and they can call on him and they can be saved. They believe Jesus is God. They believe they're sinners. They know what he did on the cross for them. They can be saved. 
every single person who was born again, who got saved at some point, they have the thought in their head, is there any way I can lose this? It has, it's a logical thought to have because we know how serious hell is and we don't want to go there and we know how wonderful heaven is and that's why we got saved. We wanted our sins forgiven. And me, and there, uh, I know a lot of times kids will have this question. I've run into adults that have this question. And the, and the question is, is there any way after that that I can still go to hell? Now, let's start with the short answer just to make sure pastor's not upset with me. No, no, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot go to hell after you've been born again. It's impossible. <clears throat> the Bible overwhelmingly states in many different ways that the born-again Christian cannot go anywhere but heaven when they die, and I want to show you a couple of reasons why. Now, when considering losing my salvation, there are only two things we can think of. Number one, I can believe that sin can cause me to lose my salvation. There's, there's a certain amount or a one that's really bad, and if I sin in some way or enough that I can actually lose my salvation. That's one thought that people will have. A second thought that people will have is, I can lose my salvation because I walk away from Christ and I reject him, and I don't want anything to do with him. I just want to live in sin. I don't want to live. I don't want to go to church or be with God anymore. And I just want to live my own way. Those are the two arguments people will come up with, and they'll say, "Well, you know, maybe I'm not going to go to heaven because of one of those things." Okay. Now, I want to give you what the Bible says about how you can know for sure, 100%, without any doubt, that once you get saved, I don't care what you do. You are going to heaven. Now let's start with the idea that you are a child of the king. There's a simple analogy Jesus goes over. When Jesus was asked about how to go to heaven in John chapter 3 by a fellow named Nicodemus, <clears throat> Jesus answers and says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When he was questioned about how to go to heaven, he relates getting saved to a one-time irreversible event, being born physically. Now, when we get saved, we become the children of God. That's why we are taught to pray by Jesus in Luke chapter 11. When the disciples went to Jesus, they said, hey, Teach us how to pray. And he says, okay, here's how you do it. First two words, our Father who art in heaven. Do you know why we get to pray our Father? Because I'm his child. I'm saved. I was born again. I'm his kid. Now, no matter what I do in this world, I am the child of Joseph and Madonna Hayes. That's my mom and dad. There is nothing I can do to change that. I can move far away. I can change my name. I can dye my hair. I can never speak to them again. I can decide I don't want anything to do with them. There's probably some silly way I can go through the courts and sign some papers and they say, okay, there you are. They're no longer your mom and dad. Doesn't matter. They're my mom and dad. 
I have half my mom's DNA. I have half my dad's DNA. I am their kid. That can't be changed ever, no matter what. Guess what? When I become born again, I become God's child. That cannot be undone. It is a one-time irreversible event. Once you are saved, it's forever. There's a popular parable that Jesus taught the people, and it's found in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24, I'll try to read it quickly. And he said, a certain man had two sons. You all know the parable, but we're going to go through it. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. So he wasted his inheritance. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent to him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. So he just had a real bad run of things. Now, don't get me wrong. He, it said that he wasted everything on riotous living. It's not like he had a string of bad luck. He made some real bonehead decisions and wasted everything, and now he's working feeding pigs. And let me tell you, as a Jew growing up in Israel, that was not preferable. And he's saying, there are all these people that are servants of my father back home that have enough food to eat and spare, and here I am starving to death in a distant land, working with pigs. This is terrible. And in verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now, here's the question. Why did the son feel that he was no longer worthy to be his father's son? Come on. Verse 18. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Why did he think he was no longer worthy to be called the son? Because of his sin. Because of his actions. Verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but when he was yet... A great way off his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Verse 21, And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. He brings it up again. First he has the thought, I'm not worthy to be my father's son because of my sin. Then when he sees his father, he tells him that. Father, I'm not worthy to be your son because of my sin. Verse 22, But... The father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now the story goes on to the end of the chapter. I think it's another eight verses. But our point is made in this very straightforward telling of the wayward son. Jesus drives home his point so clearly that I think 
an explanation is unwarranted. Two times the son mentions that he is no more worthy to be his father's son because of his sin. He thought that his sin could undo that somehow. But what's the father's reaction? The return of his son brings him pure joy. The father doesn't even mention the sin. It's as if the sin never even happened. It's as if there was no sin to talk about. Because when the son arrives and stands before the father, guess what? There is no sin to talk about. Do we see the connection there? When I stand before God one day, do I have to make an excuse and an explanation for all my sin? No. Friend, where is my sin? It's totally gone. When we read about where our sin is, uh, one explanation we find in the Psalms, and God says that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sin is away. Now, if you look at a globe, we don't have a globe, but that's okay. We're in a church. There's not much of a reason for a globe. We look at a globe. You put, you put your finger on any spot on that globe. If you start going north, how far can you go before you start going south? You start anywhere. It doesn't matter. You start going due north. You're, once you hit the North Pole and you keep going in a straight line, now which way are you going? Now you're going south right? Okay, but if you put your finger on that globe and you start going east, how long until you start going west? You never start going west. That's how far our sin is from us. When the Lord takes care of our sin, it's literally an infinite distance from us. We will never be able to see it. It's buried in the depth of the sea. It is gone. It is as if it never existed. Do you know the difference between the Old Testament with the blood of the bulls and the goats and the New Testament with the blood of Jesus? Now, I'm telling you these two words because I want you to notice it when you're reading your Bible. When you read in the Old Testament, what does it say that the blood of these animals did to the sin? It said covered. Covered. Now, I don't have a handkerchief. That's something, you, I don't know, some people have. There's a tissue. But we could take anything in my hand and we could put a tissue over it and you can't see it anymore. It's covered. But the stain, the dirty whatever it is, could still be there. Now, in the New Testament, the blood of Jesus, what word is used to describe what the blood of Jesus does in the New Testament to our sin? cleanses do you see the difference when it's cleansed it's gone it's no longer there you're just covering it so you can't see it but when it's cleansed it's gone it's gone forever The reason we are saved and we're saved forever is because it's the law. Now, I'm going to get into the law for a minute here. And I don't mean the Old Testament law. I mean real estate law. Who here has ever bought a home? 
Okay, who here hates the process of buying a home and all the paperwork and, oh, it's, it's. <laughs> My wife and I have bought houses to live in. Um, we bought a real small one, 900 square foot, two bedroom house. We bought that right when we got married. Two, three months after that, we got pregnant. And I don't know, seven years after that, we had six kids. And we were living in a 900 square foot house two-bedroom house. That's usually where people go, ooh, and you have sympathy for us, because we had six kids in that tiny house. Then we bought a piece of land, and we built a house on it. We also bought uh, vacant pieces of land, and we sold that. We've bought and sold real estate when we can, and, and that's one thing that we've invested in. Now, with every transaction of real estate comes a small mountain of paperwork. And over the years, we've made some mistakes and done some dumb things. But because of the length of time and energy it takes to buy and sell a piece of property, we don't want any potential buyers coming in and making an offer that aren't real serious about it. Because after someone makes an offer, you start going through all this paperwork, and it can take you know, a month. It could take two months when stuff goes wrong. And if they back out in the last minute, then you just wasted two months when you could have been showing the property to someone else who was serious about buying it. You see the problem? So because of the length of time and energy it takes, we want the buyer to have some skin in the game. So we learned we require that they put down a non-refundable deposit. So that weeds out all the folks that maybe aren't serious about buying that piece of property. The non-refundable deposit is the beginning of the transaction. Do you understand? So they come and they look at the house and they say, ooh and on. Ah, they want to buy the house and they tell their realtor and the realtor says, okay, we're going to sign a contract and you got to write a check for, you know, this amount. That's the non-refundable deposit. The contract and the check go to your realtor. And that's the beginning of the transaction. Now, they don't own the house yet, but they put down a non-refundable deposit. See how it works? Now, for you that have gone through this process, you say, yeah, Patrick, thank you. Go ahead and move it along. I understand. This non-refundable deposit is often called earnest money. It is a down payment or a first installment. You would give it to the seller when you enter the contract. Now, guess what? When you put that non-refundable deposit down, the owner of the property is now in a contract with you. They are not allowed to show that property and enter into a contract with anyone else because you put down a check. That's the first bit of money. That's the start of the process. They cannot sell it to someone else because they're in a contract because you put down the money. The word redeem means to gain or regain possession of something. The word redeem means to buy something or to buy something back. It means to free from a lien. It means to release from a debt. It also means to free from the consequences of sin. And it is exactly what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. In Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
He freed us from that debt. He freed us from the consequences of sin. Now, Pastor, tell me if I'm going too far when I say that Jesus bought us. Is that reasonable? We read about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. We were bought and we were bought with the blood of Christ. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ. The currency used to buy my soul was blood. The blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do it. Hebrews 10.4 tells us this. Only God's blood was sufficient to pay for my sins and purchase my soul. Now, I know that language might sound funny to some folks that God bought me, Okay, but that's exactly what happened. The question I have is this. Can Jesus sell me to someone else? Can the contract be broken? Can the deal fall apart? Can I, when I die, go to hell? The Bible answer <clears throat> is no, because we are sealed. A seal is something that confirms, that makes secure. It's a guarantee. It's an assurance. A seal designates protection and ownership. Specifically, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and nobody is able to break that seal. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Again, in Ephesians 1, verses 12 and 14, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. After you heard the gospel, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Ghost, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. God seals us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the earnest money. It's the down payment. Does that down payment expire? No. How long is it good for? Verse 14 tells us, until the redemption of the purchased possession. When we got saved, Jesus bought us with his blood. But we don't go straight to heaven, right? We're still here. So the deal is not complete. But God says, don't worry, you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to put money down. And the earnest money that God puts down is the Holy Spirit of God that lives inside of you. And it will stay there until the redemption of the purchased possession. What is the purchased possession? You. You're the purchased possession. Jesus bought you with his blood. He just didn't redeem it yet. But it says that he's going to. There's a day when the contract is complete and you're redeemed. It's a great day. You get a new body on that day going to be awesome 
Jesus purchased us with his blood. God sealed us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment or earnest money. We remain under contract until the day of the Lord when he redeems his possession. So until the day I die or the second coming of Christ, when I am raptured, I am under contract. A down payment has been made and my soul is off the market. When we enter into that contract, I can't be sold to anyone else. Jesus put down the money, and I'm off the market. When we get saved, we're saved forever. There is no way out of it. We are going to heaven when we die. Okay, I'm going to go over one more point, and then I'm going to stop. I don't care what time it is. And it's your loss. The last 15 pages, you just don't get. I'm sorry, folks. Okay. <laughs> okay, my last point about why, <laughs> why after you're born again, after you get saved, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot go to hell. Salvation is forever. How can we be condemned if the penalty has already been paid? So Jesus explains the idea of eternal security with one word. The word is tetelestai. The word tetelestai is what Jesus said when he was on the cross. It was the last thing he said before he died. It literally means it is finished. That's what he said. John 19, verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Last words of the Lord, it is finished, to Telestai. Now, all the people of the time knew it had a deeper meaning. The word to Telestai is a Greek word that is a legal term. <clears throat> if you lived in Rome and you broke the law, you would go to prison. And in that prison, they would nail to the door your charge. And you would stay in that prison until your debt was paid. And however long that was, and anyone that passed by the door could see that notice that was nailed to the door that said why you were there. And you'd stay in prison for a short time or a long time or for whatever it was. But <clears throat> there was a notice that had your charges upon release they would take that notice down and the judge would write on it to telestai it is finished paid in full and then roll that scroll up and they'd give it to you and then you could not be accused and charged with the same crime again in america what do we call that Double jeopardy. If you get accused of a crime and you serve the time, you cannot be accused of that same crime. Well, I mean, if you do the crime a second time, but you cannot be charged with the same crime. You cannot serve twice for one crime. So you would have this document, and this would be given to you, and it would be your protection against being charged with the same crime a second time. When Jesus died on the cross, whose sin did he pay for? Yes. Who else has sinned? Everyone's, right? 
Everybody and anybody. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no exception. There's no person that the blood of Jesus cannot save. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can, shall be saved. That's the best news I've ever heard in my life. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for everyone's sin. That was the purpose. Salvation's there for anybody and anybody that calls on Jesus. Okay, now, when I call on Jesus to save me and to forgive me of my sin, what sin do I mean? All of them. All the sins from that day backward, right? What do you mean all? So you mean... So all the sins from the day I got saved backward that I can remember, right? Not just the ones I can remember? Even the sins I can't remember? When I call on Jesus to save me, you're saying that I imply that I want to be forgiven for all the sins from the day I got saved backwards, the ones I can remember, and the ones I can't remember? That's what you're saying? Are you implying that when I get saved, I mean I want Jesus to forgive me of all my sins, including the ones that I didn't even do yet, that I'm going to do someday in the future? Is that what you're telling me? All of them. Every single one. So, when Jesus said, paid in full, did he mean all of them? So you're saying that when I called on the Lord for salvation, Jesus said, the crimes that are keeping you out of heaven, the sins laid to your charge, all those ones in the past that you can think of, they're paid in full. And then all the ones that you did in the past that you can't even remember, or you don't even know you committed, all those are paid in full also. And all the ones from today forward until the day you die, those are all paid in full as well. That's what you're saying happened. Every single sin from the day you were born until the day you died that you committed on purpose or through ignorance, they are all paid in full. Is that what we are saying here today? I agree. Just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. The handwriting of ordinances. Are those all the rules that we broke that were written down and nailed to the door of our jail cell? All those things that were keeping us locked up? Every single one of those? They were all taken out of the way and nailed to the cross? And when he was on the cross, what did he holler out? It is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. 
So there were trespasses that were written down against us. And when Jesus died, he took them out of the way and nailed them to the cross. When Jesus said to Telestai, he was talking about our sin. My sin is paid in full. Well, if it is paid for, it cannot be paid for again. It's already been paid for. That means there is no sin that I can commit that the blood of Jesus did not cover. That was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross, was to cover every single one. The judge made his ruling and struck the gavel. The case is closed. And Jesus said it will never be opened again. The crime has been paid for. Jesus took the certificate of debt for all people of all time, listing all our sin, and nailed it to the cross, declaring it paid in full. There is no sin I can do that hasn't already been paid for. There's no time where I can mess up and sin against God, and God's up in heaven, and he says, Oh, I forgot about that one. That one surprised me. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that one. Jesus paid for that one too. There is no sin I can do that hasn't already been paid for. I can walk away from God and reject Jesus because I'm just a knucklehead and I'm living in sin and I'm just struggling along and I'm out of church and I'm just doing real bad. That doesn't change the fact that all my sin has been paid for. There is no longer sin in my life that needs to be paid for. That is why the born-again Christian must go to heaven when we die. What happened when Jesus yelled out, it is finished? There's a lot of things that happened. Can anyone tell me some stuff that happened? Give me one thing that happened. Go ahead, anybody. Hold on, not you. <laughs> Come on. The veil was rent. The graves were open. What are we talking about there? Do you remember that? Do you know that in the book of Matthew, it says that the dead saints burst forth out of their graves and walked into Jerusalem, and hundreds and hundreds of people saw them. Did you know that? There was an earthquake, the sun was darkened, the rocks were ripped in two. Folks, do you understand that when Jesus said, it is finished, that disrupted the universe. That was the greatest event in the history of the universe. And God made it so impactful that the entire world heard about that event. People, Pastor, you were talking about how in Acts, now remember, Pentecost, how far off was that after Jesus died on the cross and rose again? Okay, it was 50 days after the day he rose from the grave. The church started 50 days after that. And then we just read a few chapters and thousands of people are getting saved. Why were thousands of people getting saved? Because they saw the graves open. 
And the saints walked in Jerusalem. And they testified of Jesus and what happened. As soon as Jesus died, the one man that was standing right in front of him, the Roman guard, said, this must be the king. This is the Messiah. This is God. It was so impactful that when Paul started to preach around Jerusalem, thousands came to Christ instantly because all he had to do was say, this is the God that made the earthquake and the sun go dark and the dead rise out of their graves. And people flocked to Christ and wanted to be Christians. When Jesus said, it is finished, that was the largest, most impactful, most the greatest event in the history of the universe. And he made sure that everybody in the world knew about it. Friend, when you get saved, it's forever. I sleep like a baby every night. Because I know that when I stand before God one day, it's not that there are some sins that have to be dealt with. It's as if I never sinned at all. They're all gone. They're all paid for. That's why I can go to God anytime, every day, with my head held high and tell God how much I love Him and ask Him for help. It's so, so wonderful when we understand that our salvation is secure and it can't go anywhere.